Well, good morning to all of you Calvary Chapel warriors. Glad you're here today. Yes. Uh, I just want to also welcome folks on Facebook and YouTube. I usually forget that, but I'm glad you're joining us in our worship today. But I just want to share with the body here how thankful I am for Steve's announcement. <laughs> I mean, he makes me look almost positive. I'm, I'm telling you. <laughs> I mean, I share his heart, you know, winter, snow, ice, and I just wanted to go in gloom, despair is hanging in on me. <laughs> thank you, Steve. But also, I want to thank the worship team. I thought they did a great job today. Yes, yes. Amazing. Hey, we're continuing our study in, in uh, lessons in Gethsemane and in Matthew chapter uh, 26, 36 through 46, and we're going to learn about what Jesus uh, did in Gethsemane, the agony of Gethsemane. Um, this is a special time for Jesus. He's just getting ready to die. The cross is literally hours away, and he wants his three best friends, Peter, James, and John, to be with him and to watch. And they fell asleep, and they didn't watch. We're going to learn a lot about lessons from Gethsemane. If you would, stand as we read the Word of God today. Matthew 26, starting in verse 36. And Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the, to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is the word of God. Our Father, we thank you for this time that we can study this material about our Lord's death. Thank you for Gethsemane, the time of agony. Thank you that there are things that we can learn as we go through our Gethsemanes. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would speak to each person here today. I ask that everyone in this room, everyone that hears this teaching, will be touched by God in a unique way. And we draw closer to our God because we have spent time in the Word of God. Thank you, Lord, for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. The theme of Matthew is Jesus is the promised King. I don't know about you, but every time I read that, I re it just resonates with me of the hope that the King is coming and this whole thing is going to be made right. Now, we last time we taught, we talked about Jesus told his disciples that all of them would stumble. And then Peter pipes up, 
prideful Peter pipes up and says, oh no, even if, it, this, is, this is a quote, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And what did Jesus say? Oh, Peter, before the rooster crows three, twice, you're going to, before the cock crows twice, you'll deny me thrice. Ah, three, that's how it goes. Yeah, you'll deny me three times. We must know that, of course, the disciples stumbled and Peter stumbled. Jesus said it was going to happen, so that's a fait complete. It's going to happen. But I want you to think about this. They stumbled. I stumble. You stumble. We all stumble. Now, what does that mean? That means we all have the stumbling gene. We have this sin curse that has been imparted to us because of Adam's fall. By one man, sin came into the world, and death through sin, and death passed upon all men, mankind, because all have sinned. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us has the sin curse. We have the stumbling gene, and that can only be corrected by the blood of Messiah being applied to our lives. Now, I want you to also think about this. Adam in the garden knowingly sinned. Eve was deceived, the scripture says. She was deceived. He knowingly sinned. Adam then made excuses. He was the guy that said, oh, but the woman you gave me, and he, he starts making excuses, and we learn that we are not to make excuses, that we are to own our sin going forward. He was a great excuse man. The result of Adam's sin is that, again, the sin curse has been credited to us. Scripture tells us in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. There's none who does good. And you know in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Oh, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then it goes on to say in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, if, if, you will only confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that he, he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. During our lifetime, folks, we'll have innumerable times when you will hear the word of God and have a chance to believe and receive the gift of salvation. It will touch you in some way. Also, we have innumerable times that we must realize, I don't care if you're a Christian, non-Christian, we will stumble. We will stumble. Forgiveness, folks, is not automatic. There's a process that must, we must go through. Remember, last time in the teaching, there were like five things that we talked about. Number one, own your mistakes. Don't make excuses like Adam did. You own your mistakes. Number two, confess it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we learned not to wallow in our sin, not to live in our past sins. That, that is the past. That is dealt with. As soon as we ask for forgiveness, that is gone. As far as the east is from the west, our sins are cast from us. Our sins though as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Folks, that's how God views our sins once we bring it to him and it's done with. So put it behind you and strain towards what is ahead. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 says this, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. Oh, but one thing I do, 
Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, we press on towards the goal to win the prize which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. Folks, leave the past behind. Don't wallow in your sin. Don't live in any failure. Pick yourself up through the power of the Spirit and move forward. And then forgive yourself. Remember, that is the most difficult of all. If God has forgiven you, then you cannot hold on to that sin. You, that, that, that transgression. You have been forgiven. You move on. Do not wallow in your past. And then finally, because God has forgiven us so much, we are to be quick to forgive others. Folks, that's a requisite for Christianity. We must be able to forgive others. The Christian life is one of moving forward. There's no standing still. There's no such thing as, okay, I'm in my place. I'm not going to move anymore. I'm just going to just be where I am. And that's an that's a absolute recipe for drifting back. And here's some, we did our study in Hebrews, what, about 12 years ago, and we learned in Hebrews that if you do not keep rowing against the current of life, then the current will take you back, and you'll slip away into, the, into, into other, other land of living. And I have a picture here of these guys who decided they would stop rowing. And what happened to these guys? This happens to us. They start to drive, the boat starts to sink, and then the current will take you away. Folks, don't think that you've made it and can stay still. Christianity is something that is constantly pressing forward. No such thing as stopping rowing. Your, your boat will sink. Also, I wanted you to remember from the last te teaching that you have something that the world does not have. You have the Holy Spirit of God resident within your being. Spirit of God is resident within you. What does that mean to me? That means that I can make a faith choice instead of a flesh choice. I can say no to my flesh and yes to the Spirit of God because of the power of God that resides in me. Now this week we're talking about Gethsemane. In verse 36 through 37, Jesus is entering into Gethsemane. He knows his time is close. He's feeling the pressure of the moment. Let's read verse 36. And Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Jesus, on his way to Gethsemane, would be going from the Mount of Olives, and he'd be going down a road that at the bottom of the mountain is Gethsemane. So when you go on your trip to Israel, which hopefully one day you'll be able to go on, I don't know when that will be, but anyway, uh, because war is over there now, but this is the road you'll go down. This road is packed with people. This just happened to get people out of the way. But this is the road of, down the descent of the Mount of Olives. On this road, there will be all kinds of vendors trying to sell you things. There will be a guy there with a camel, and you'll take your camel ride down there. That, and you get photographed, and that's really cool too. And then at the bottom of the hill is the next slide. This is Gethsemane. It's not a large place. It's where the olive trees are. These olive trees are reported to be 22,000 plus years old. These olive trees were there when Jesus was in the garden. That is something we want to remember. Also, when you go to Israel and you're walking down that pathway into Gethsemane, at the top you're going to get a bird's eye view of the Temple Mount. And on the Temple Mount, you're going to see several things. 
First of all, you're going to see the Dome of the Rock. This is the third most holy place in Islam. And this is where Muhammad was ostensibly, ascend, well, lyingly, ascended into heaven and talked with God and had all kinds of information. He was there for one day and then he came back. You're also going to see this giant mosque, the Alaska Mosque. And then noted here, this is the Western Wall. This is where everybody goes. That's all that's left of the old temple complex. And this is not the temple complex itself. This is the wall surrounding it. Notice that it's outside the temple complex. But this is the holy place for the Jews today. And all the travelers go here and want to go to the Western Wall. So with that, I want you to think about something. When you look at the Temple Mount and you think about the angst in the world regarding the Temple Mount, and you think about why do the Arabs have control of the Temple Mount? This is the reason. In 1967, the Jews fought a short war with, with the Arab nations. They did well. They annihilated them. They expanded their territory. But because of a of fear of expanding the war into a more religious war with more and more Muslim countries, Moshe Dayan, he'll come up, his picture will come up here on the screen. He's a, he's a general, and he, he was a, a, an incredible man, and, but he did not a good thing here by ceding the Temple Mount to Jordan. Now, Jordan has administrative responsibility over the Temple Mount. Now, as you notice, most of the times you'll see this guy, he has his, a missing eye, and most people wonder, why is his, his, his eye missing? In 1941, he fought with the Jewish contingent against the Vichy French in Syria. Now, the Vichy French are the French people that sided with Hitler in World War II. And it was there that he lost his eye. That's where that story goes. He fought then, and he was in the Austrian, Australian 7th Division of the British Army, and there he lost his eye. Now, the result of seeding this Temple Mount is the chaos that you see today regarding the Temple Mount. Now, back to our text. Jesus enters Gethsemane with all of his disciples except Judas, and he does something interesting. He, he, he takes three people, Peter, James, and John, and wants them to go with him, his inner circle. And Jesus was sorrowful. He was deeply distressed. He was grieved. He was burdened. He was feeling the strain, the agony of that moment, and he wanted his closest friends, his inner circle with him. This was a time for them to enter into his sorrow. And he said this, he requested one thing from them, stay here and watch with me. Now, that in the Greek is a present tense imperative. Now, you know, because you're good Bible students, that an imperative is a command. This isn't a suggestion. Oh, would you please watch with me? No, Jesus is saying, you guys watch with me. I need your help. I need your support during this time. And in the present tense is you keep watching, keep watching, keep watching, keep watching. Folks, that's a, a message for us. We are to keep watching in our lives. Watch over, watch your step. Be careful where you go. Keep watching, keep watching, keep watching. Don't, don't put your guard down. It's easy for the world to suck you away. It's easy for you to be tricked by an enemy that wants to steal your joy, wants to steal your life. Keep watching, keep watching. He wanted his inner circle with him. His inner circle, Peter, James, and John, they had three unique experiences with Jesus. They were the ones that saw Jairus' daughter 
raised from the dead. They were on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus just kind of tore open his, 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 his external and his glory just shined through. And oh, Peter was so blown away. He goes, oh, should we make booths right now? Oh, this is, this is a feast of tabernacles. Oh, the kingdom is coming right this second. And, and many there, there have the opportunity to be with him in Gethsemane. Now, I want to show you something. You've seen this before. I've had this, this picture before, this slide. But in, in any life, this includes our lives, there's an inner circle. And Jesus had an inner circle. Pe people that were he was most kindred with, people that he was wanted with him in times of extreme duress. And then his 12, the rest of the 12 are outside, a little bit distant, more distant from Jesus. He loves these just as much. But these are the ones he connected with the most. And then the 70 disciples that went out are here. And of course, the rest of the world is here. The point is, and I love this slide, get as close to God as you possibly can in our lives. That's what we want to do. But you want to realize that in your life, you can only get so close to so many people. So close. You might love them the same, but you can only get so close to so many. The internal pressure, the stress of the moment is overwhelming for Jesus. Remember, Jesus is God incarnate, but he's also a man. And in his flesh and blood and bone, he is feeling this stress, feeling this, this, this tension. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Folks, that, that language is passionate. That is passionate language. Now, I think there's something that we can learn from this. In our time of despair, Jesus did not have a crowd. And in our time of despair, we want our inner circle close to us, those who we can count on to watch with us, to enter into our agony with us, those who will carry out Romans 12, 15, rejoice with those that rejoice. And folks, we weep with those who weep. In our time of despair, I want to suggest to you something, that you have a place that you meet regularly with God. This has been established in your life. And I hope you have a place where every day you meet with God, your special place where you do business with him. You can pray anytime. It, it can be in the freeway. It can be in the woods. It can be any place else. But, oh, there should be a special place in the heart of each Christian. This is where I meet with my Lord daily. There we do business with God. In our time of despair, we want to meditate, immerse ourselves in God. And remember this, in your time of despair, never forget this, our God is close. It is in those times where we feel like, oh, he's distant. Now, where, is, where is Jesus in this? I don't know where he's at. I can't sense him. Like Job, if I go to the east, he's not there. If I go to the west, he's not there. If I look this way, that way. And then Job comes to a sense, he says, oh, I know where I will find him. He senses, he knows that God is close. I hope you know in your time of despair, God is close to you. His presence means everything. In our time of despair, remember this, Jesus knows he was here. He lived on this earth. God came here and feels the pain and misery and depression and discouragement that comes with living on this earth. Hebrews 5, 7 says this, 5, 7, and 8. Who in the days of his flesh, when he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement tears 
that's Gethsemane, to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things he suffered. Jesus was persecuted. You know, when you think about demonic attacks on humans, this is true, these things happen, but no one had demonic attacks like Jesus did. No one experienced that weight of pressure that Jesus did. And I want you to think about this. Jesus learned from persecution, and I believe the church today throughout the world is learning from persecution. Remember our Mission India uh, study that we went through? Mission India, we learned that there's a, there's a, there's a reality of persecution. There's rewards for persecution. What were the rewards? What were, what were, the, what were the, well, what, the response to persecution next is forgiveness, but the rewards of persecution. And I got to thinking, what in the world reward is there to be in the persecution? And it comes out that these Indians or these Iranian church people or these North Koreans that are feeling the pressure like we can't even imagine. You know what they get to? They get to the point where they're all in with God. None of this half-in, wishy-washy, mamsy-pamsy Christianity. They lay it all on the line. They draw close to him. This, these are the people that live out William Borden's no reserves, no retreats, no regrets. I will trust in the Lord until I die. Jesus in Gethsemane in verse 39 is asking, is there any other way, Father? I mean, this is God incarnate saying, is there anything besides this way that we can save those people? Verse 39, he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed saying, oh, my Father, you can feel the passion of the moment. If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In Gethsemane, Jesus asked, and folks, I want you to realize we can ask our God to relieve us, to relieve us from the tension. Is there any other way out of this agony? He's facing death. He's facing death. Jesus, the man, pours out his heart. The anguish, the weight of the hour that he's looking at is coming on him. He's feeling it. Nothing is held back. Again, with passion, oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there, what's he, is there any other way, Father? Is there any other way, any other path than this one? But then he says these words, and I hope this resonates with you. Not as I will, but as you will. That's an incredible requisite to drawing really close to God. Is there any other way? And the answer was no. Jesus was the only person in, in all of everything that, that existed that could save humanity from their sins. It took a perfect sacrifice. Remember, God is holy and sin is ugly. Sin is ugly. The presence of sin, he cannot be in. All of sin, we cannot be in the presence of God. Humanity is doomed to be separated from God in hell forever unless there's a Savior. Jesus says this in, in the Godhead. I can just hear the discussion. I will go for them. I will go. I will go. I will be the son that sacrifices. And Jesus was murdered 
by the very people he came to save. You know, most people blame the Jews and say, oh, the Jews are Christ killers. Uh-uh. Every one of us, our sins put Jesus on the cross. Remember, it took every one of our sins. He took them all on the cross. We're all guilty. John is in heaven. He has a vision of heaven, or he's been taken there. Don't really know. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, he sees the throne of God, and he sees a deed to planet Earth. And there's no one that is able to take the scroll, the deed to Earth. And he starts lamenting, and he starts crying that it, 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 there's no one. He knows that no one can, can save humanity. And then an elder steps forth and says these words, The line of the tribe of Judah has prevailed to open the scroll. You see, in the garden, Adam had the deed to earth. And Satan tricked him, usurped authority, and the deed went to him. He is the ruler of this world. Several times in John, he's called the ruler of this world. Remember, he doesn't own this world. He's just a usurper. He's a trespasser. His time is limited. His time will be up soon. I think we can say praise the Lord for that. Uh, that his, his reign will end. But never forget, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It is God who owns this earth. He owns the world system that is in place on the earth right now. How did Jesus prevail? Well, of course, you know the story. He died for our sins. Last, week we talk, last time we talked about propitiation, atonement, an acceptable sacrifice, appeasing the wrath of God. It took the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It took His sacrifice to take our sins away. Only He could do that. Only He could do that. This, folks, is the reason that no other world religion is true. No other world religion has a Savior. When you see the bumper sticker that's coexist, and in the middle of that coexist bumper sticker, even Wiccas, demon worshipers, okay? Even in that coexist bumper sticker, they think that's all the same. There's just any way you want to get to God, just choose your way. That's syncretism. It's called syncretism, multiple ways. That's false. That's false. Thomas asked Jesus a question. A profound question in John 14, 5. And he says this, how can we know the way? That's a great question. How can we know the way to heaven for real? I mean, I want to know for real. How do I actually get there? Every world religion thinks that they have the way. No, they do not. They do not. Jesus answers emphatically, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except by me. No one comes. Jesus is exclusive. That makes the rest of the world not like us, Christians. Because we cannot say that, oh, your way is okay and your way is okay. No way. No way. This is a side note, just an anecdotal note. I don't know how much you guys know about the Masons. But in the Masonry, they act like they're Christian. But they believe in multiple ways to God. You can be a Muslim Mason. You can be a Hindu Mason, you can be a Buddhist Mason, and you can ascribe to their teaching because there's multiple ways to the architect of the universe. That's their code language. Masonry is false, folks. Hopefully you realize that. And if, you want to, if anybody's a Mason in here and likes to talk to me afterwards about it, I'd love to speak with you. 
and try to redirect you. So, uh, in verse 40 to 41, Jesus' closest friends, they're caught sleeping. Now, if you're in the military, you do not want to be caught sleeping on watch. You want to keep your eyeballs open. I mean, that's a court-martial offense. Keep your eyes open. 40. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, and what with an exclamation point, could you not watch with me one hour? There's a sternness here. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, this was a time when Jesus needed these guys the most. Okay? Well, just so you know this, in 1979, Randy Van Warmer wrote a song, Just When I Needed You Most. And it says this, Because I need you more than I needed you before, now where will I find comfort? God knows, because you left me just when I needed you most. And that's what these disciples, they just weren't watching. They just drifted off and they forgot about Jesus. This was his crucial hour. You know, they should have had a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of adrenaline flowing through them. I mean, Jesus, is, he says we're going to be dying. He's in Gethsemane. No, these guys just are all into themselves and just drift off to sleep. Found them asleep. Macho man Peter, he sternly, sternly addresses. Watch, you could not watch with me for one hour. Jesus had an expectation of his closest friends to watch with him. He did not let them off the hook. Tells us how pitiful our flesh is and how big mouth we have. Jesus warned them about entering into temptation. Now, what temptation is he warning them about? 30, verses 31 through 35, talking about you all are going to stumble. You all are going to run. He's talking about this. He makes a profound statement, one that addresses Peter's macho talk. He talks to Peter in verse 33. Says, Peter says, I will never be made to stumble. If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And he hits him right between the eyes. Oh, Peter, the spirit is willing, big talk, Peter. But the flesh is weak. You know that word weak is? Asthenia. No strength. There's a neuromuscular disease called myasthenia gravis that affects the muscles, the synapse. The, re, the, the muscle cannot respond to the acetylcholine and the receptors get damaged and the muscles get weak until the person can no longer breathe and then they pass. No strength. Watch. Don't be caught sleeping, church. Don't be caught sleeping, church. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14. What does it say? It's one of our favorite verses. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let everything you do be done in love. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. In 42 through 46, Jesus reaches the point of resolution. Thy will be done. And again, a second time, he went away and prayed saying, Oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. I hope that is the heart of everyone in here when we pray, Lord, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again and prayed a third time saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand. The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. 
rise, let us be going. And then I think he points his finger and says, see, my betrayer is at hand. Judas is coming with the herd to arrest him. Resolution. The first, oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. The second is a little bit different. Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass from me unless I drink it, your will be done. It is here at the second cup that, that Luke reveals something that Matthew doesn't. He says in Luke twenty two forty three that angels strengthen him as he prays more earnestly. So he praying more earnestly. It's more passionate. And then he says, Luke adds, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of anguish, but Jesus did at his moment before he was going to die. He had great drops of blood or drops like blood dripping to the ground. Third time he prayed, saying the same words, Behold, the hour is at hand. He's reached resolution. That's where you want to get to in your prayer of agony, resolution. It's time, no more delay. Father's will be done. You know, Jesus came for this hour. He knew it. And he told his disciples over and over, this is the reason I'm here. I will die on the cross, but I will rise again from the dead. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed in the hands of sinners. Let's go, gentlemen. Let's go. It is time. It is time. You've been trained. I've been with you for three and a half years. This is your moment. Rise up. Let's go and face the enemy. Jesus, knowing his faith, fate marched headlong into harm's way, knowing the outcome. There's no getting out of this one. Knowing the outcome. He was resolved to do the Father's will. Folks, in, the, in the, what we call traditionally the Lord's Prayer, but it's really the disciples' prayer. What does it say in there in Matthew 6.10? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Closing, lessons from Gethsemane. Gethsemane teaches us many things. But in agony, go to your prayer place. The place where you meet with God personally on a regular, regular basis. I pray that everyone in this room, everyone in the sound of my voice, has a place where they meet with God regularly. Where you spend time with Him, cultivate the relationship with Him. Jesus had this familiar place. He had been to Gethsemane many times. This isn't just a, a one-off for him. I think this is a place he was to many times to pray and meet with Father. He needed relief from the crushing. Gethsemane means oil press or olive press. A place where we go when we are crushed, when we are in tribulation. Thelispus is the word. Thelispus, being crushed. And I have a picture here, a slide of an olive crushed. And it's just like your life being crushed. That's what we go through in life, is the olives. It's a word picture here, a word picture. I want you to think about this. Jesus in his physical body was not Hercules. He was not Hercules. Isaiah 53, 2 says this, He has no form or comeliness that when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He was an average Jewish man. You could call him Mr. Average. Judas did not say, hey, go get the tallest guy in the group. He'll stand right out. 
Don't get the muscular guy in the group. Go get the fat guy in the group. Go get the bald guy in the group, the red-haired guy in the group. He didn't say any of that. He was so average, he blended right in that he had to betray him with a kiss. Jesus had to be crushed, folks. Jesus did only what the God-man could do. He paid our sin debt and reconciled us to God. He was the perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 talks about what actually happened on the cross. Listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs. Very familiar verses. As a matter of fact, these verses you're not allowed to read in synagogues because it's so pointed at Messiah that Jesus fulfilled this. It's so pointed they won't allow these verses to be read. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows on the cross. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by who's by who? God, God, and afflicted by God. But he was wounded, why? For our transgressions, our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Every time you see or you think about the cross, he's there because of me. Point at yourself, me. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. That's an important concept because you cannot have peace with God until you have a relationship with God through the Son. Then you have peace. Our peace was upon him. And then this word, by his stripes we are healed. And there's many people in Christendom that say, oh, this guarantees my physical healing. I don't want to disappoint you. There may be some element to that. But the main focus of this, you are healed of your sin curse, your sin disease. No mere average man could do this. This is the Lord God Almighty. The Lord God Almighty. He became an average man and accomplished the greatest act ever in the history of this world. Sacrificial love. The greatest act of sacrificial love that anybody could ever do. There's two more slides here I want you to look at. The first one, again, goes through Isaiah 53, verse 4. But he was pierced for our rebellion. Let that just sink in. He was crushed for our sins. He was beaten so that we could be whole, complete, healed in a, in a sense. He was whipped so that we could be healed. Healed of our sin curse. Jesus felt the crushing of the moment. Now listen, Isaiah 53.10, the Lord was pleased to crush him. Doesn't that just blow you away? Why? Because God loves us. God so loved the world, agape the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That's why he did it. Jesus volunteered for it. The Godhead in unity says, yes, yes, it pleased God to crush him so that we could have a relationship with the living God. It's the only way. I have a question for you. I want you to ponder this. Was Jesus afraid of death? No. No. He knows exactly where he's going. He has been in heaven. He knows what heaven is like. He is not afraid of that. He can't wait to get there. It's this process. It's this process. Why was this moment so crushing for D Jesus? If he didn't fear death, why was it so crushing? 
I want you to hear this. Jesus knows that on the cross, he will take all the sins of the world upon himself. Every sin that mankind ever committed, any rebellion, any act outside of God's will placed upon Jesus, placed on himself, past, present, future sins, all sins placed on him at that moment. In a sense, Jesus will be crushed by all of our sins. Big sins, little sins, little fibs. We think aren't any big deal. Little teensy, oh, that's no big deal. We can just sweep that up. No, no. God is holy. Can't be in the presence of any sin. All sin was placed on Jesus. Jesus paid my sin debt, something I could not do. No one in heaven could pay the debt. That's why John was lamenting in heaven before the throne of God in Revelation 5. And he's weeping until the the lion of the tribe of Judah steps forward. No good person could sacrifice. Had to be the God-man. A songwriter hit a home run with this one. And you know the song. And it goes like this. And you can join me if you want. If you don't want, you don't have to. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to get this right or not, but I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Now you can sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Jesus paid for all of your sins. Don't ever live in condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Satan will always come and say, you're useless, you're no good, you're a failure, you're going back to this thing. No. You're convicted by the Holy Spirit. You get right again with God by confessing your sins and you pick yourself up and you move forward and you don't listen to those voices. They're lying voices. Gethsemane teaches us the agony of God. In agony of God, go to your prayer place. Gethsemane also teaches in prayer, we become one with God. I hope you understand this, the purpose of prayer. Gethsemane is a place where my will is crushed and my will no longer matters. God's will becomes my will. That's what happens in prayer. You know, we, always, we want to change the mind of God, change the heart of God. I want God to do what I want him to do, but I'm so pathetic, I have to say, Lord, your will. I really want this house, Lord. I want this house. I'm praying. I want that house. I've done this many times, believe me. And he saved me from many times of not allowing me to have what I wanted. I've learned your will be done. God's will becomes my will. And then that moment, I am truly one with God. Now, isn't that where you want to be? I want to be one with God. The goal of prayer, folks, is to change me, to get me in line with God's will. I hope you know that. Gethsemane is a special place where I learned thy will be done in my life. Now, don't mistake what I'm saying. I think that we have the absolute honor of boldly approaching the throne of grace with our petitions. And we can ask our Father, and we know that He will hear us, but we also have to know He has the right to say yes, no, 
And most of the time, it's weight. You can deal with the yeses. You're just thrilled with that. The noes, oh, oh, shucks. And then the weight, it's like, oh, man, this is the worst part of this whole thing. As you learn this, Gethsemane teaches us something else. What Jesus' agony really was all about. Jesus knows something that all sins of the world are going to be placed on him. The awful, the bad, the nasty, the trivial, all placed on Jesus. This is not the worst part of it. I hope you know that. This is not the worst part of it. Jesus knows that when my sin, put your name there, my sin, all the sins in the history of the world are placed on Jesus, Jesus will lose something precious. And this happens when we sin, folks. He will lose the sense of the presence of his Father. He will lose the sense of the presence. You know when you sin, you feel that separation from God, and you're going, oh, God, where are you? And you want to make it right by confessing and repenting. Where are you, God? Jesus will sense the abandonment of his Father. He will lose touch, in a sense, in at least what he's experiencing with the Godhead, the Father and the Holy Spirit, for the first time in ever, ever, ever. We can't understand ever, eternity, but it's never happened but one time that was on the cross when he sensed this. This describes, is described in Jesus' fourth cry from the cross. And I hope you hear this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels absolutely, abjectly abandoned on the cross. That's what he knows is happening. This, folks, is the agony of the cross. This is what Gethsemane was about for him. This is the sweat droplets, sweat like droplets of blood. This was, Lord, Father, is there any other way that we can accomplish this besides me having to go through this? I don't want to sense the separation from you. Now, I want you to understand something. The Godhead was not fractured on the cross. The Trinity was still in place. This is the man, God-man, dying on the cross, and he's sensing, like we would, the separation from God. It's Jesus' moment of going, oh, my God, my God, why? Why? It's your why moment. Why, God, am I going through this? Why is this happening to me? Why is it happening to me? And he's crying out. To the Pharisees, he's telling them something different. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They know right away to turn to Psalm 22. And in Psalm 22, it's saying exactly what is happening on the cross. He's telling them a message. I'm the Messiah. I'm the real one. I'm fulfilling Psalm 22 right before your eyes. Gethsemane agony was Jesus' main concern. The beating was awful. The cross was awful. Don't underestimate this. The degrading comments, awful. The embarrassment of hanging on the cross, stripped naked before his mother, the women, and the world was awful, humiliating. This is the history of the cross. One man wrote this, Crucifixion was invented and used by other people groups, but it was perfected by the Romans as the ultimate execution by torture. The earliest historical record of crucifixions dates back to 519 B.C., 500 years before Christ. 
when King Darius I of Persia crucified 3,000 of his political enemies in Babylon. Rome perfected this. When the victim arrived at the place of crucifixion, traditionally, this is the way it happened, he would be stripped naked to further shame him. Then he would be forced to stretch out his arms on a crossbeam, and there a nail was placed. Now, folks, this is not a penny nail. This, if we're doing our Easter thing, I would have a couple spikes here for you to have a little peek at. But it, and it didn't go through the palm of his hand. It went through their wrist. So these carpal bones could hold you up and not rip out. That's the agony. And it went into your feet. That's the agony of the cross. The misery. But worse than all of this stuff on the cross is when Jesus was declared legally guilty for every sin. Now listen to this list. Now you could come up with your list, but this is what came to me. Every genocide. You know what genocide is? Killing millions of people. That's what Russia did with their revolution and China did in their revolution. And that's what happens many places. Genocide, child abuse, alcoholism, murder, adultery, homosexual activity, greed, gluttony, gossip. Look at lewdness, envy, slander, every arrogance, every greedy moment, every selfish moment. He died for it all. He took it all. Any sin you can think of placed on Jesus. That's the agony of it. You know what happened? This happened for three hours while he was on the cross. From the sixth to the ninth hour. The first three hours, he's suffering on the cross like everybody else did. But oh, from the sixth and the ninth hour, you know what God does? He brings darkness over the face of the earth. And in that moment, all the sins of the world are placed upon his son. The darkness of sin is portrayed here. That it is dark, it is ugly, it is nasty. Folks, this is the real agony of Gethsemane. Gethsemane also teaches us this. My will and my way gives way to God's will and God's way. Already mentioned a little bit before. In Gethsemane, there are no more questions. No more questions. No more debate with God. Simple resolution, God knows and I don't. It's just that simple. Why did my two-year-old get a Wilms tumor? God knows I don't. I don't know these answers. Why was my grandma not healed? Why did my brother die of a brain tumor? Why did this happen? Why did that happen? Why did that abuse? Why did that rape happen? Why did this? I don't know. But in Gethsemane, you come to this realization that I don't understand. All of those things are because of sin, folks. Whenever you think of agony, misery on this planet, take it all the way back to the real one who brought it in. That's Satan, okay? Adam's fall, sin came into the world, and with that, ta-da, we get to live with this, with this mess. Every divorce, every fight, every mess. Jesus came, took it all on him. In Gethsemane, I go from struggle and agony to resolution, and then something special happens. The peace of God that passes all understanding washes over me. Gethsemane, I realize God has it. God has, I don't understand it. God has it. In Gethsemane, we'll carry out the Richard Farmer statement, and most of you guys know it. Okay, let's say it together. I will trust in the Lord until I die. Okay, now for the recording, 
Let's do this with some fervor. I will trust in the Lord until I die. That's right. You learn that in Gethsemane. It's my sincere hope that you understand now more about Gethsemane. We too, we too, you know this, we will have our Gethsemane moment. And I pray that we will learn from Jesus and follow his lead. And just never forget, God has it. Not my will, but your will. Make your Gethsemane your greatest God-glorifying moment. Oh, you can, you can tell the world, my God reigns in the worst of situations. I trust him no matter what. How will you glorify God in the agonies of life? You respond like Jesus. This, folks, is finishing well. This is finishing well. This is your greatest God-glorifying moment. I have a picture here of Numbers 26, verse 20, excuse me, Numbers 6, verse 24 through 26. The Lord spoke to Moses and tells Aaron, it says, Tell Aaron, this is the way you bless the children of Israel. And then he holds up his hands. And it's, this is the shin, okay? This is the shin. This is El Shaddai, God Almighty. And he's praying a blessing over the children of Israel. And then he says this words, May the Lord bless you and keep you. Now, I say this often, but I want you to remember the passion of what this means. Keep guard over you. Hedge you in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Hedge you in. Keep guard over your soul, over your thoughts, over your life. Keep guard over you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. That's his presence, the presence of God. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. That's his attention and favor. And then he says this, and give you his peace, his peace, his shalom. And shalom means this. You know, the word for peace in the Greek is erin, and it means tranquility. Shalom means much more than tranquility. Shalom is much deeper than tranquility. This is what you get from God. It is not simple tranquility. Well-being. Get this one. Completeness. Prosperity. Wholeness. Health. And great harmony with God and others. Safety. Oh, shalom. May the peace of God that passes all understanding rest upon every soul in here. Only God comes, only this comes in a relationship with the living God. John 3.36, folks, is true. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. And I pray today that if anyone here does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, that this will be the day that you say, yes, I believe in you, Jesus. I commit my life to you. I place my trust in you. Then you will have peace with God and can experience the shalom of God. No one can have shalom truly without being at peace with the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the things that we can learn from Gethsemane. Father, I ask you now to touch each heart. 
I know that you have spoken to each person here. That's how you, your word does. It never returns void. And I pray that we'll receive the word that has been given. And not just receive it, not just be a hearer, but a doer of the word of God. If someone here does not know that you, you as their Savior, I ask you, Lord, to put it into their hearts and they come up and talk with me afterwards. Lord, if someone has been running from you, I pray that they'll turn and run to you. Lord, I pray that your will will be done within this group today. May the Lord Jesus be glorified in every life that's here. In Jesus' name, amen.